0: Thank you for that golf clap. I appreciate that. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you're here. If you're under 30, especially. Um, I know. For some of you, it's too late, as I (laughs) say. But for people under 30, um today's message can really save your life um, and give you a vision of a upside-down happy life, uh, like a, a, a happy life that the world can't deliver. It's not surprising the words come from Jesus. The words that come from Jesus are so challenging that the immediate reply of the listener was, increase my faith. Help me believe what you're saying. What you're saying is true. Give me faith. Because if you don't put this into practice, at a young age, you'll have an unhappy life. That's why my under-30 comment. And I want you to have a happy life. I mean, a a godly life, and you need to grasp this. It will absolutely save you, grief. I didn't say this in the first service, but last night I got a call. One of our longtime members is um, leaving life at 84, and uh, I was having a conversation with him about if he was ready to go to be with Jesus. And He said, I, I feel like I've aged 10 years in the last 10 days, a whole bunch of complications, and he's going to be with Jesus in a few days, everybody thinks. And I asked him, um, are you ready? He said, I'm ready. And I, I said, um, wh- why are you so hopeful about eternal life? He goes, because I've had grief here. Grief, Hardness. has made me ready for heaven, for, for Jesus. And it's no life in the room misses grief. We all experience grief in our life. And today's a text about when you get hurt by other people. What do you do? Well, listen, we're in the flow of the text. It's chapter 9, verse 51 that the Bible tells us Jesus is going to Jerusalem. It's chapter 19, verse 28, that he arrives in Jerusalem. So from 9 to 19, he's traveling around on his way to Jerusalem. The only thing important to know about Jerusalem, if the Bible's new to you, is that's where Jesus' life comes to an end. And the way it comes to an end is there is a conflict between religious leaders stimulated by pharisees scribes and the roman empire and they conspire to put jesus to death and at the end of the gospel stories matthew mark luke and john jesus is put to death he's buried he rises again and he goes to heaven and that's where he is now Hmm. and he's coming back but the end of the gospel stories are the passion of jesus to die for the sins of the world, and we are on our way to Jerusalem. We're in chapter 17. In 19, we're going to get in Jerusalem and then spend the rest of Luke in the passion of Christ. On the way, Jesus is telling parables, and he's teaching his disciples, and you just get this sense that sometimes he's looking at his disciples and talking to them and giving them a lesson, and sometimes he's looking at the Pharisees who hated him, and wanted to get rid of him, and he's giving them a lesson and a parable, and they're scratching their heads because they don't get the parable, and they always end up saying, you're crazy, I don't believe what you're teaching Jesus. And the disciples are trying to listen to Jesus and say, how do I live out what Jesus is saying? And in this text today, Jesus again turns to his disciples, and he's talking to them. But as you'll notice, every time he talks to the disciples, you just get the sense that the Pharisees who hated him are eavesdropping and they're just listening in and he drops a nugget every once in a while that's for them and that's what happens here verse 1 luke 17 and he said to his disciples temptations to sin are sure to come but woe to the one through whom they come woe to the one through whom they come Jesus just begins to say, it is inevitable that people are going to stumble and sin. Now, sin is a really uh, unpopular idea. Why do you talk about sin so much? God talks about sin, and sin is any lack of conformity to the will of God as He has revealed it in His Word. And it matters to Him. It's why Jesus went to the cross to forgive sins. But he just, Jesus simply tells his disciples, everywhere you look, it will be inevitable that in a broken world, you're going to see sin everywhere. And there are going to be allurements to sin on every turn. Would you agree? I mean, if anything has gotten more open and in our face, it's that sin and come and do this immoral thing or come and do this indulgent thing or come and do something that god forbids is all around us and everywhere a young person goes today i i i think of you and think i mean temptation to sin against god is everywhere and jesus said that's inevitable the world's going to get worse and worse and worse and temptation is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger but whoa he's looking at his disciples I think it went like this, but whoa to the ones through whom temptation comes. And I think it's in his mind that there are, were certain people who were leading people astray. And it was the Pharisees. Always again, Jesus talks about the Pharisees, how they love their own idea of righteousness. They love to practice their good deeds in front of people, to be noticed by people and then they would try to lead those people astray and help force them to practice their empty religious uh, activity. They were judgy. They hated the sinner. They were always looking down on the tax collector and the sinners, and um, they were pressuring people to be just like them, which is why Jesus described them as pretty on the outside, but full of dead men, boned on the inside. They were always trying to lead people astray. In fact, in one searing rebuke, you want to hear Jesus at a really intense moment. This is what he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across land and sea to make a single disciple or proselyte. And when he becomes a disciple of yours, you make him twice a child of hell as yourself. But Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees is they are leading people astray. And I would ask you, what leads people to go astray from Jesus today? Why do people leave the church? Why do Christians fall away? Jesus says, temptations are going to come all the time, but woe to you if you're responsible for leading somebody astray, causing one of these little ones to stumble. If stumbling blocks come through you, woe. Now, just get the picture. The woe is worse than the illustration. It would be better if you put a big stone around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest sea and you were drowned there than to cause one of these little ones to fall away from Jesus. It mattered to Jesus that if you lead people into sin, if... If anyone was responsible for leading people to fall away from Jesus, it would have been better if they had died a premature death and suffered that consequence than whatever the woe is for leading people to give up on Jesus and to fall away. I think the little ones here in the whole story of the flow of these chapters are the tax collectors and the sinners that he was ministering to, people who were brand new in the faith, who had recently come to know Jesus and follow Him, and their faith is young and is like a warning, do not be responsible for leading a young person, a young disciple, to fall away from the Lord and to give up on on Jesus. That is a warning. I think about that warning a lot. If I were responsible for false teaching or for teaching something that would make you say, um, Jesus isn't true, Jesus isn't real, and you'd fall away. I mean, there is a woe to teachers who teach falsely, or pastors and leaders and uh, Christian examples who cave in and live a scandalous life and lead people to give up on the Lord and walk away. I mean, it's, it is a huge warning. I had a pastor's group that I, I was l- listened to one of these pastors And uh, I'd gone to a group with him a number of times, and he said, in the pastor's group that he was in, they would frequently begin their time together by this prayer. Dear God, please take me home to heaven prematurely. Let me die before I commit adultery against my wife and scandalize my church. And all the other pastors would say, amen, me too. And it was there. Agreement that it would be worse to so jeopardize your life with Christ and lead young believers away from the faith, it would be worse that you died early than if you did something like that. I mean, the warning is super intense. It's a serious thing to cause another person to stumble. But it can be done. We want to be careful that none of us are responsible for driving people away from Jesus. That's the warning. And so the next words in verse 3 is, pay attention to yourself. Be careful. Be on guard for yourself. Do not let this happen. Don't lead others into sin. The second thing he says then in verse 3 is, if someone is in sin, help them get out of it. You don't be responsible for leading someone to sin, and if someone is in sin, do your best to help them be delivered from that sin. So he says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. How does that sound? that sounds like, oh, I was just going to make a really bad joke. <laughs> it sounds like a bad relationship to me. If that happens every day, But well, we're going to talk about it. And I think what Jesus is saying is like sins are inevitable. We all stumble in many ways. Everybody said, right, we're all sinners, we're all broken, we're moving in process to Jesus, but we're we're weak. And we're going to sin against each other. It's impossible to live together without offense. That's going to happen. What do you do when someone sins against you? Well, there is a statement. If your brother sins, rebuke him. I, w- I want to work my way through the text and handle as many questions as I can about this. So hang in there. I'm going to try to get to them. The first one is this idea of rebuke. That is to stand someone up and say, hold it. That's not right. It's a reproof, a correction. It say, oh, that's, that's not what Jesus would do here. And we're called to do just that. And then to forgive that person. But I just want to remind you, it's a mark of Jesus to address sinfulness. And then forgive it. That's the pattern. Jesus calls us out. Go and sin no more. I forgive you. No condemnation. I, I see it. Stop it. I forgive you. Go on. Oh, you did it again? Okay, I see you. I forgive you. And it seven times in a day. So what's being asked of us, if you're willing to think of it, is a habitual life of forgiveness of people who sin against us. It's a habitual life. How is that possible? Verse 5. Give me faith. Help me believe that. We'll get there. Um, now listen, if you are if you want to see how the Apostle Paul, because you use the word rebuke, it sounds frightening. Most of us would rather, if we see something, just sort of put our head down and ignore it. It'll go away. But Jesus says, if you see your brother sin, your sister sin, challenge it. Call them to follow the Lord. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Write this in the margin because this is this is teaching for how do you rebuke somebody? How do you challenge someone? We're not, we're not a church that's going to try to rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. This is what we're going to try to do. If anyone is caught in a trespass, someone's stuck in pornography, let's get real. Someone's drinking too much. Someone's a gossip, a liar, a complainer, a grumbler. You know, you fill it in you're living not like Christ someone is stuck and the pattern of their life is stuck in a transgress you who are spiritual should restore i like that word better it's a little easier than rebuke but it has the same idea that you're stopping someone and say hey listen what you're doing right now the way you're talking about john boyle is not appropriate okay um, yeah, that's you, you don't Uh, or whatever. And I, I want to restore you in a spirit of gentleness. Not arrogance, gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you also be tempted. I think that means that the first thing you say is, I understand what you're going through. I've been there. And if it's true, I've done it. And then, you know what? So you're talking about someone struggling with honesty or lust or greed or whatever, and you say, could you not say, I've I've had my challenges around lust. I know what you're going through, but I'm as capable of this as you, but I'm calling you, this is what Jesus wants for us both. And bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You are doing what Jesus would do. The the law of love, I love you enough to say this is not going to be good for your life. Stop this. That's gentle. If your brother sins, rebuke, challenge, and then try to restore. We all want to do that. Now listen, think about this whole text. Seven times in a day. If, If that happened... It's like it's a number that's meant to say it happens so often that you just always do it. But if we started looking at other people's failures and calling them out, we would never stop. We would be like, police. And, and that's not the spirit of this. And I want to show you why. I, I think it's not to try some to find somebody who's messing up and go get them. Everybody hear me? Let me show you a couple of verses. Here's 1 Peter uh, chapter 4 and verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Let's read the last phrase together. Since love covers over sins. So love each other earnestly. Love covers over sin. So there'll be some things that happen that somebody commits a sin that you would just say. <clears throat> God bless you. And I'm, I'm not going to make a deal of it. I, I think this has to happen in marriage. Those of you, those of us who are married, you know, um, my wife loves me. And I know there's just times she just looks at me and says, that's just the way he is. And her love for me covers over a multitude of my weaknesses and frailties. And sometimes there are sins that just because you love a person, you, you don't address them you're writing down verses, 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Proverbs chapter 11 and uh, chapter 19 and verse 11, it is a glory for a man to overlook an offense. It's like a beautiful thing when you, you see something and you say, okay, I, I can overlook that. In day-to-day relationships, you have to do that. You just have to look over and forgive somebody and not make a big deal about it. Sometimes you have to. We're going to get to why. But sometimes you do. Um, In our text, it actually says, unless they repent, don't forgive them. But there are parallel verses in the New Testament out of the mouth of Jesus, where the condition of repentance in the person who's the perp, uh, is not required. In Mark chapter 11, in verse 25, we read, um, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that the Father also who is in heaven will forgive you your transgressions. But there's no condition of repentance. Just Jesus in another place said, when, when you're standing and praying and you're trying to worship God and you think, oh, to remember what he said about me. What, uh, Lord, I forgive them. I I just release them to you, and I pray that my heart will be right toward them, and I forgive them because I want to worship you, and I want to be right with you, and I want you to forgive me my sins. In the Lord's Prayer, recorded in Luke eleven, uh, we we know Matthew's account probably best, but this is the way Luke records it. And forgive us our sins, as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We we forgive them. Lead us not into temptation. Uh, Forgive us as we forgive others. Again, no condition. There are certain things that happen that we just say, okay, I'm I'm just going to forgive it, give it to God, and I'm going to pray that God will cleanse my heart and not let me hold a grudge against this person for the way in which that sin impacted me. And then there are times when... The sin that's committed is such that the relationship is fractured, I think. And there's no uh, relationship. It's broken. There needs to be a reconciliation. And I think that's largely in the view of Jesus in this text, that when your brother sins against you um, and you you go to him, I'm sorry, I repent, I, I won't do it again. And then you do it, but you're trying to keep restoring the relationship all along the way but the condition for him is that he repents, forgive him. And I think this means that from the heart we forgive people, but there may not be a restoration of relationship and reconciliation if the person who did whatever is not repentant and doesn't acknowledge it and doesn't own it. I can release them and not hold a grudge, but the Reconciliation of relationship may not occur until they acknowledge that. Now it's easier to forgive somebody who says, I'm sorry. Is that not right? Someone who repents, um, it's a lot easier. And what's in mind in the whole forgiveness process is not to make the person grovel, but to restore the fellowship of the community. So we're going to draw this down to some personal practical lessons that the whole concept of forgiving someone is not about me becoming therapeutically healed, although that may happen. I may feel better if I release somebody the debt that I think they owe me. And it's not to be punitive to the person who did this offense to me. It's about restoring the relationships and the love of God Um, and in the relationship there's a couple important things that i i want you to take away because this always raises questions um and i want to give you three words and see if i can draw out the difference between forgiveness is not the same as justice which is not the same as vengeance and when it comes to this whole concept it's good to know where each is Forgiveness is the ability to release a sense of indebtedness of someone who has wronged you. Forgiving someone is not incompatible with the pursuit of justice with regard to the one who has sinned against you. You can forgive and do justice. You think of the worst cases of sin against a person in terms of even criminality or abuse. It is possible to have a heart of forgiveness and pursue with righteousness justice for the person who wrongs justice is getting the right end which is to be distinguished from vengeance vengeance is an internal boil on the inside of our soul a simmering desire to get back at or to get even with that easily turns to anger an internal sense of simmering of the soul until the other person gets their due. That's different than justice, which we're told to love mercy, do justice. Justice aims at making things right with regard to the perpetrator, the victim, the protection of other victims, and the whole healing of the community. That's right. And what we do in forgiveness sometimes is have to say, I forgive even though justice is not going to happen for a long time. And then not have a seething internal vengeance. Paul helps us in the book of Romans. He, He tells us what we ought to do in these cases. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, it simply says, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if it's Oh, read the next two words. If possible, that should help us. That should simply help us know that at times, to the best of your ability, you're doing all you can to get right with somebody and they won't have it. If possible, live at peace with everyone. But never avenge yourself. I love this phrase, leave room for the wrath of God. It's as if you sort of step out of the way and say, hmm? <laughs> leave room for God to do what God will do. Uh, you know, we, we might not be trusted to do justice in a, in a right way, but we leave room for God who will uh, do what is right in these cases. That's an important idea. Now you say, what if I have tried really hard to forgive, but inside I still feel really broken and angry and bitter? I would say you are experiencing in a deep woundedness the process that forgiveness takes. Tim Keller has written a book called um, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And uh, it's a good read. David Paulison, another uh, counselor, pastor type, has written uh, a book called Good and Angry. And it's, again, about dealing with pain. And um, I think it's Keller that's quoting Paulison, who said, Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. And if you wait to feel it, you may never grant it. There is in forgiveness a word of promise that I say. I say, God, I forgive this person. And to the best of your ability, you say, Lord, I believe that it's right for me to forgive them. Um, Now help my heart to catch up in um, in the process of what I promise to release them to you and turn them over to you and let you do what's right in this circumstance for them. This is the real challenge of working through the process of this. But it is very, very important that we learn how to do this. A lot of times we're still angry. And what we have to do is sort of remember how is, what has God done to me um, that calls me to do this to someone else. I've been fully forgiven by God. It is not surprise here that the next verse that the disciples say... Um, Just give me faith. Before I go there, this is where one more last point of zeroing in. Your spiritual life hangs in the balance of your ability to be a forgiver of other people. You can get twisted inside and bitter and lose years of your life if you cultivate an unforgiving spirit. We have an example of it in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, there was an immoral man who was judged by the church and sent out. I think it's that person in 2 Corinthians who is spoken of. And it says of him that sufficient was all of the judgment of the church to rebuke him. And it appears that he has repented. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2... Paul says to the church, now I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I want you to welcome him back. Forgive him. And anyone you forgive, I forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ, for the whole community. We, we forgive for the unity of the whole community so that, here's the kicker, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I think what Paul is saying is this. If you refuse to extend forgiveness to someone, you are giving Satan an opportunity on the inside of your soul to take a root and design in bitterness and unforgiving and grudge-holding to corrupt your love of people, love of God, and, and it can just twist you up on the inside with a satanic strategy to jeopardize your spiritual life. It is a foothold for the enemy to stunt your spiritual growth. So, learn to forgive. And the disciples said, Ah, give us faith. What, how do you do this? Yeah, so verse 6, verse 5 and 6, they said, increase our faith. And Jesus said to them, if you have faith like a little mustard seed, which is small, smallest seed that was known at the time, uh, and it was what was used every day, a very tiny seed, it's not the size of the seed, it's like, what, like, what is the faith in? It's just a mustard seed that is the living seed. Out of the seed grows fruit. And the seed just needs to be small, but it needs to be carefully placed, placed in the right object. My faith is in God. So increase my faith. What do you need to believe about God? Increase my faith in God. What do I need to believe about God if I've got somebody who's killing me? I need to know, God, you are good. God, you know. God, you care. God, you will make this right one day. God, you suffered more than I did. God, you, there was never anybody innocent. I'm a sinner. I'm not innocent. You were not a sinner. You were totally innocent, and you went all the way to the cross. I just transpose in my mind my own self-impression and my idea of who how great I am to Jesus, who actually is great, and I, it just helps me. That's what I need to believe. Increase my faith to believe this. Now we have models in the Bible. Thankfully, you look in the Old Testament and you have models. You have Father Abraham. Father Abraham had a relationship with his nephew Lot, and their herdsmen had a conflict, and it was really strife, and I'm sure it was very tense. And Abraham just simply said, Lot, you pick the land you want, and you go where you want, and I'll take the rest. Turn it over to God. I trust God for that. And Lot went, and Abraham got. Or how about Joseph? Can you think of somebody in the Old Testament who is a better type of Christ, who suffered unjustly, was sold by his brothers, spent years in prison, and at the end of his life he simply said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. I see God's hand. I forgive you. How oh, you think about that is just stunning. Or how about David, King David? Saul wants to kill him. He's chasing him down. He's in a cave and he has a chance to take Saul out. And he says, I will not touch God's anointed. Yes, he's trying to kill me. I know that. But he's the Lord's. I give him to the Lord. I release that to you, God. I leave room for you to do what you want to do. We have models. We just have to bring it into today because everything in our culture today is saying, if somebody hurts you, you hurt them back better, bigger, broader, cancel, whatever. That is not the way of Jesus. And it will ruin the inside of your soul. And the thing that you need, we need most, is faith. Just to say, Lord, give us faith. Give us faith to trust you. Any questions? All right, let's pray then. All of us have been hurt. All of us have wounds. All of us have people who are not against us. And if you don't, you probably will. And it would just help to have the mind of Jesus that we'd have to say, Lord, help me to believe that you know about the ways I'm being hurt. Help me to believe that you care, that you take notice, and I'm going to walk in the steps of Jesus. Help us to know that we are never more like Jesus than when we forgive someone because that's what you do, Lord Jesus. You forgive us. So, It seems very hard to do, and we acknowledge our need of You. Would You just hold us close to Yourself and help us to cling to You, and uh, will You heal the wounds of the hurts we have and somehow bring us to the ability to be like Jesus and say, "I, I release You and experience in our own soul the healing that is forgiveness. In Jesus' name.